is the New South Wales Country Hour with Michael Condon on ABC Radio New South Wales. Hello again and welcome to the show. Coming up, legislation has been introduced in the New South Wales Parliament to make it easier for farmers to harvest native timber, but former Liberal MP Catherine Cusack says concern over koalas means she'll now campaign against the Coalition at the next election. The National Party are absolutely unbridled and unprincipled and the Liberal Party uh, and its weak Environment Minister are doing nothing to hold them in check, backslipping and introducing new legislation that will accelerate the destruction of koala habitat absolutely breaks my heart. Just in terms of what it says about the ethics of these people on top of the fact that they clearly don't care about koalas. And we'll hear from New South Wales farmers about the issue as well. They're welcoming the new legislation, all that and a whole lot more coming up. You can always send us a text through the country, our 0467 922 That's the number to text me here at the country hour. But first up today, flood damage roads will be a problem for months. That's according to the Boganshire's uh, Mayor, Glenn Neal. The main Newell Highway, as we heard yesterday, it's still cut between West Wyalong and Forbes and, a, and there are huge volumes of water that still lie over other major thoroughfares throughout the state, Central West and Riverina. Glenn Neal agrees with Mayor of Forbeshire Council, Phyllis Miller, who says federal government help. Uh, is needed to make the highways flood-proof, as has been promised in the past. But he acknowledges uh, with more rain being forecast this weekend and more trucks on the road due to the grain harvest, the outlook is not great. That's absolutely the case, mate. You know, like, we, um, we've we got a number of uh, roads within the Shire, both some sealed and some unsealed roads. There's a lot of them are going to be untrafficable for a while. And some of the damage is not going to show up until we do start in trafficking. But obviously with harvest basically started, that's going to escalate. So it's a, uh, yeah, going to be a fair headache, mate. So you're worried about the truck damage once they start moving on those roads that are fragile? Yeah, look, we've, we've already, we're already seeing some damage. And, you know, people, it's a hard call. People have still got to try and get about their business. And, and I really don't think after the saturation these roads have had that, you know, we probably can't sit back and wait four months for them to dry out because it's not... Some will get better quicker, but, you know, we're going to have problems in low-lying areas for months after this, I believe. That's what people have been saying, although Phyllis Miller was hoping roads would be trafficable earlier than that, but they were saying, you know, this is months to repair a lot of these roads. Well, it is. There's going to be... I guess there's a difference between getting them accessible and mm. being repaired. And yeah. that's what we'll be concentrating on for a start is getting them so that we can actually get traffic through them and over them and then when it dries out, try and go back and make the major repair on them. Then like, There's just no way you can do it now. And so does that mean that the that under the bitumen has washed away or some of those potholes have just made these massive potholes in the in the roads as well? Yeah, that's a bit of the problem, mate. Like in, in uh, some of the causeways that that we've got, you know, like it's, uh, the Hermit Island Imagery Road, for example, we've got a couple of causeways there that the bitumen's sort of gone and we've had to backfill them with ballast to try and keep the road open. Still not terrific, but, you know, it'll it'll keep the roads accessible. But, yeah, it, and, then, and that's going to be where it's going to take a long time to fully assess what our damage is going to be. Like it, you've got no way to tell them, really, to them starts to traffic here the obvious ones where the bitumen's washed off yeah it'll be saturated under it 
Yeah, so it, it's so it's the it's it's under the bitumen as well that could have washed away too. That's making it could could be making it precarious even if you get especially if you get that heavy machinery or the or the big trucks going over. Yeah, there's no doubt, mate. It's going to pump up. There'll be patches that'll that'll turn pretty ugly, but you know we're just going to have to deal with them as they arise. And, what about well, a lot of it's still got water over? It. Yeah, I was going to ask that. How much water is there over the roads? Yeah, it depends where you are. A lot of it has gone, but there's a lot of places there's still a trickle, like the the road to the tip is still basically closed. The uh, Pangee Road south of here, there was about four to 500 mil of water across it still yesterday over a stretch of about 300 metres, I suppose. So, you know, until that goes right away, we've got no real idea what's going to be under there, but there's a lot of areas like that, both sealed and unsealed. The Tottenham Road will be... There's patches on it we haven't seen. We don't know what we're up for there, but and it's a fairly well-trafficked well, road. I was going to say, yeah, a lot of traffic on that road at times. Yeah, there is, and, and there's been... Our roads, to what they were 20 years ago, we handle a lot more traffic these days and a lot, you know, a lot more heavy transport and there's a lot more grain movements in the district as a whole. So, mate, a few weeks is going to tell an ugly story, I'd say. So more used to more of the grain used to go on rail and that's be beefed up or just more production. More production is our mm. biggest issue, mate, and it's not an issue. It's fantastic mm. to see, but you know, like there's a huge amount of grain growing here compared to what there was twenty years ago. And what about the fifty million dollars from the state government to fill potholes? That's welcome. Maybe not enough. Need a bit more, mate. I, I don't think there'd be a, a local government area that could say they would never need more, but. Yeah, we welcome it with, with both hands open, mate. Yeah, we all know it's not enough money, but it's money that we didn't have before and it, and it's a start and it's going to give us a chance to, to have a crack at some of these major holes like it was intended, you know, to try and go along and make it better. We know it's not going to be fixed, but at least it's a chance to, to get them up and run them a bit better so people can traffic them without damaging their cars. Phyllis Miller was saying we need to make sure that all the major highways are flood-proofed. Um, what's your response to that? That's that's probably a fair enough statement. Like, and I know what, where Phyllis is coming from, you know, like further south of Forbes, and that, that's always been an issue through there for years, and it's and it, it's uh, no doubt that it needs to be fixed, but it's, it's also something that Sam Faraway announced in... Uh, in the announcement that day that they're looking at a betterment program which instead of just repairing sections time and time again get in and fix them up properly well you'd need you'd need money. and you'd need federal money for that and the and you know that that uh, you'd, yeah that you and and a fair bit of it absolutely mate and every area at the end of this is going to need a fair bit of money you know like if you most areas here like i just spoke to our engineer this morning and you know we just sort of said if you plucked a figure out of the air to start with like you'd probably be looking at between 10 and 15 million dollars to to begin with and every local government area is going to be chasing that or more glenn neal is the mayor of uh, Bogenshire council and uh Yes, the situation there. Millions and millions of dollars worth of damage and a call for federal government assistance, particularly for those highways. And uh, it's a call we're hearing as well the, uh, from uh, freight contractors. They say something has to be done about the roads, especially as we start to see grain trucks moving around during harvest. Daniel Ball is a freight contractor and he says he's never seen it so wet 
and he's fearful that some roads, when put under uh, pressure from, say, the B-doubles, will just actually cave in. He's seen exactly that happen before in wet years, and he's also calling for some national infrastructure help. Oh, it's gonna it's gonna go deep in the sense of um, just, it's at a bad time. Like just right at harvest time, when everyone's trying to get up and down that highway, there's a lot of farms that use that highway's key access to get to the grain grain terminal. So um, you know, it's probably it's it's gonna knock that around a lot. So by forcing them off that new highway being shut, they're gonna be going a lot of more rural roads, which is gonna obviously impact that. And before this flood come, them roads are in in, in a terrible state. Just from all the rain events and the traffic, like there's, it's, um, I've never seen anything like it. Like for years, we used to go to Queensland and think their roads are pretty ordinary, and now everyone comes up here and thinks New South Wales is the worst to go to. And it's been a mission on its own for the Shires, no doubt, just with all the weather and 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 all the access and all that's been a, been a mission for them. Um, but every time you say something to one of the council fellows and talk, you know, this is a joke, we get this on top of this, they all talk about their funding's not there, they haven't got funding for this, they haven't got funding for that, and, and they and they can't go and fix it without getting it approved first for the funding, and then they'll come out and inspect it or something, and the funding's, you know, they said, oh, your road's under bad, they don't get the funding, so they're not fixing anything until it's been approved for funding and all that, and therefore the roads are getting in twice as bad a state because nothing's been... Um, they're getting twice as bad a state because they've been left too long. Like a small job turns into a major job because they don't want to touch it until someone inspects it so they approve for funding. It just creates this big snowball effect. But that highway alone, like it's it's just, there's been talk about it for ages about with the floodway there, especially with the floodway where it's closed at the moment. Um, they wanted to, you know, there's been people saying, you know, you need to get more coal that's under the road. And every time they do an upgrade, all the locals there go, mate, this isn't, this isn't going to work here. You sure got in a floodway here. There needs to be more culverts. And the engineers turn up from God knows where. They say, oh, no, no, it works on paper. And anyway, next thing it's a disaster. And they go, oh, well, we tried. And, and uh, if they listen to the locals, they might they might get somewhere where they can do it three times. And with that as well, you know, this a, a similar situation in 2016 happened with the Newell Highway where it was closed for, for months after the flood. What... What's the situ- What do you think locals are feeling like on the ground now that it's a similar situation here in 2022 where the new highway, according to the mayor, is possibly going to be closed for six months? Yeah, look, they said this last time, but once the floodwater comes down and it starts to dry up and we're coming into summer now, so things should dry up good if it stops raining, um, you know, I believe we will get... I reckon they'll get it open a lot quicker. They sort of, you know, they say the worst things, expect the worst and things don't get better. I think it will get open quicker, but the thing is, they're doing roadworks and they're trying to do major upgrades and it just keeps raining and raining and they keep trying and trying. Um, there's been roadworks here for over 12 months in one spot and because of the rain, it's, it just keeps pushing them further and further back. So that water's just right up to the edge of the highway for, for 20, 30 toes and, and that eventually it just soaks through, soaks under the highway and everything and then that becomes, that becomes, makes that road soft and with all the trucks, pounding up and down there all the time, it eventually just creates these, you know, creates soft spots. And, and when you do get a flood, that just washes away. It's not just the state's fault for not, you know, getting in doing what everyone says. It's more, we have a phenomenal, a lot of rain to deal with. Um, and it's it's very wet. Like, I, I've never seen this wet in my life. And even my, my, um, you talk to a lot of grandparents and all that, they, they've never seen it as wet as this, but but there's things they can do by listening to the locals that live along that road and see it all the time to improve it. And they just don't tend to listen. They'd rather listen to an engineer that's never grown up in the area, never been from the area, 
It might work on paper, mate, but it just doesn't work in practicality. And you know, with this closure of the the new highway and the the damage that it start the this rain's done to to the roads, what do you think is that going to mean for for farmers come harvest? You know, with people trying to get crops off the ground, are they going to be able to to get them then on trucks and and out and about? Well, look, we've had this conversation with a lot of fellows out in the um you know in the in the area west of the highway, and that's where a lot of my customers are. And we just don't know, they're, like, they're going to be able, in three to four weeks, they're going to be able to start harvesting. We're a lot later than we usually are. But they said, we don't know how we're going to get the trucks in. So they, they're trying to come up with storage systems and bag systems and all that to bag the grain and, and we'll try and get the trucks in as soon as we can. We just don't know. It's the unknown. Like, and, and the ground's not going to hold trucks up. So last year, uh, a, a friend of mine had a truck and the ground looked great and, and it just broke out from underneath, but it rolled the whole triple, like the whole back half of the triple over. Just from the ground collapsing, and um, and and the road in the front where the truck had drove was absolutely fine. All of a sudden, it just broke through a crust and, and just laid over. And that gut feeling gives you a bit weak in your drive. Everything looks good, and the amount of times we pulled headers and chased bins out trying to keep on top of the ground, the roads are going to be in the same condition. And, and of course, the roads have gone so far. You know, instead of doing micro maintenance on them to try and keep them up to date, they've gone that far. The potholes have got that big, and you're idling along trying to miss potholes and travel times got ridiculous um the roads all the roads out there need to skim the gravel after all this rain because the gravel's washed off and it's got pounded in, in you know pounded into the dirt so to speak into the mud the roads will not hold up they're not holding up now daniel ball who's a freight contractor talking about the state of the roads it's uh, coming up to 18 minutes past 12 well, uh, still on uh, freight issues and a vital link in Australia's food supply chain uh, is said to be exposed due to those difficult seasonal conditions without a formal support system. Australia's Livestock and Rural Transporters Association wants to create a sort of self-insurance type scheme to deal with these difficult year- years because uh, they think that uh, there needs to be some sort of a floor to the price and assistance there. Megan Hughes has the details. COVID-19 border closures, drought, flooding rains and the threat of animal disease incursions. Like the rest of Australia, rural truck drivers have been facing a lot of difficulties these past three years and they know there are more difficult seasons to come. Warwick Fraser owns a livestock truck fleet in southern Queensland. He says the challenges have been mounting. Add to that, obviously, the significant costs, blowouts that we've seen recently in terms of all operating costs, fuel, you know, diesel prices, you know, have doubled. Add blue supply issues and uh, pricing there has, um, has doubled. And right through to, you know, we've come in the last three-year period, we've come through droughts, we've come through... Flooding rains, which are hugely disruptive to um, to any form of transport, and now the significant staff shortages. It's certainly been a, a, an extraordinary and, and challenging period for, for livestock transport in general. Australian Livestock and Rural Transporters Association Executive Director Matthew Munro says if the pandemic proved anything, it was how important every link in the food supply chain is. Rural transport, I think as we've seen in recent years in particular, it's an essential service. Uh, without uh, transport on the road, we see... Um, staple items in supermarkets that uh, can run out and mum and dad consumers feel that pinch pretty quickly. 
Now the industry is hoping to better future-proof itself by establishing a type of self-insurance scheme. Mr Munro explains how it'd work. Our concept is based on the farm management deposit schemes that are already in place. Uh, they've been there and working for many years and they are in effect a, a multi peril insurance scheme, so a self-insurance scheme, I should say. So a participant uh, in a good year may have surplus income and they're able to make deposits into a farm management deposit scheme in that year, uh, which would be then tax deductible uh, in the year that it's deposited, uh, but it could be withdrawn later and taxed at that point. And so a later point could be a year in which the business was struggling uh, and needed that money. Mr Munro envisions it would be available specifically for rural and livestock transporters who are at the mercy of seasonal conditions but critical to food security rather than the whole trucking industry. I think anyone who is dependent on the seasonal conditions could really benefit from a scheme like this. I think there are other parts of the trucking industry that uh, are not as closely dependent on seasonal conditions and wouldn't have as strong a case for a scheme like this. The idea is still a while away. The industry group wants government support to undertake modelling to determine exactly how this scheme could work, what the costs would be and the net benefits for the rural transport industry. A federal government spokesperson told the ABC in a statement that they are open to further discussions. Operators like Mr Fraser are welcoming the proactive approach. I think it's great that um, that the industry is looking uh, at these issues um, importantly and, and putting them on the table and particularly giving them oxygen at a state and federal level. Warwick Fraser runs a livestock truck fleet in southern Queensland and he was finishing that report from Megan Hughes. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Legislation has been introduced into the New South Wales Parliament to make it easier for farmers to harvest native timber. The bill cut back the restriction on land clearing for properties zoned for farming or forestry and extends the period of the agreements from 15 to 30 years. A similar bill triggered former Liberal MP Catherine Cusack to cross and cross the floor and vote against her own party in 2020. It triggered the so-called koala wars and caused the government to lose a vote on the issue. But Premier Dominic Perrottet says he's now upholding a commitment the government made to address, address national party concerns. South Coast-based independent MLC Justin Field described the policy as crazy, in particular the plan to remove the need for council approval for native forest logging on private land. Now that Catherine's not in Parliament, the National Party have tried it again and I'm shocked that the Liberal Party has been prepared to go along with it to remove these dual consent provisions. But this will also make it impossible for councils to put in place further environmental protections through zoning rules to limit private logging, which is an industrial activity. Forestry Minister and Nationals MP Dougal Saunders says the changes are necessary to increase the supply of timber. There is a real need to support the long-term sustainability of the farm forestry industry in this state and ensure it can support timber supply chains and markets, particularly in the context of the impacts of drought, bushfires, floods and the health and economic consequences of COVID-19 on rural and regional communities. And former MP Catherine Cusack says she will now campaign against the coalition at the next election over this issue. 
the National Party are absolutely unbridled and unprincipled and the Liberal Party uh, and its weak environment minister are doing nothing to hold them in check, backslipping and introducing new legislation that will accelerate the destruction of koala habitat absolutely breaks my heart. Just in terms of what it says about the ethics of these people on top of the fact that they clearly don't care about koalas, Bronwyn Petrie is from the Conservation and Resource Management Committee at New South Wales Farmers Association and she told David Clawton that the changes are important for farmers and will not negatively affect the wildlife. Timber is a really important component of our farm incomes and farm management and it helps farmers be far more resilient and prepare for hard times such as drought, floods, you know, low commodity prices, illness, etc. So we have been waiting for a long time for this to happen, once to have an extension of the um, private native forestry plans from 15 to 30 years. And the other is to remove that duplication of dual consent in the councils that require an additional approval to that of the state government. Why is it so significant for farmers, this particular uh, source of income? For, For the average farmer, how important is it? Well, it's really, it's basically the timber on our uh, our farms provides not only shelter for grazing, particularly on the, you know, in our colder area in uh, in winter, also in drought. Uh, it's basically our bank. Though it helps at some point us, you'll be able to sell those trees. In times where yeah. we've got trouble, you know, when you need income. cattle or floods, etc. Yeah, you can so, get the, the timber companies to come in and harvest some timber and that could get, could get you through some tough times. Look, exactly, and it's not just for the farmers, it's also for our communities. We we know very much, we keep hearing about the housing crisis, the timber shortage, the way the timber prices have skyrocketed. And it's not just for houses, it's for the critical infrastructure, for instance, that's been destroyed in the bushfires and the floods. So, so would, would native no forestry, sense. though, be any good for the building industry? I thought it was softwoods that they only use for, for, for construction purposes. Oh, no. No, 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 no. There's a lot of a lot of hardwood is used, and Australian durables are very uh, sought after, and um, you know a lot of the flooring. You know, there's a lot of um, structural components made out of the hardwood timber, but our timber is also used in bridge girders, tele- you know, power poles, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, as well as in the housing, and. Um, it just makes no sense to have this duplication and increased cost to not just farmers but also to ratepayers by having councils duplicate what a specialist forestry unit does in local land services and don't forget that the compliance is done by the Environment Protection Authority. You know, yeah, We are an importer of timber in Australia and will, in- will increasingly be so if we are so blind as to keep locking up or restricting access to our own well-managed forests and we're importing it from countries that have nowhere near the environmental management standards and requirements that New South Wales does. We do have a, a unique problem globally, though, in Australia, don't we? When it comes to our native wildlife and the the, the flora, there's a, a we're amongst the worst country in the world when it comes to extinctions of native species, and the koala obviously is the the flashpoint here. So. Will this result in more of the koala's habitat, for example, in threatened areas being being bulldozed down? Look, not at all. There are they've actually had increased requirements for koala protections in the codes that were um, reviewed and announced back earlier this year, about six months ago. So that increased the existing strong koala protections. So 
we've now had added on to um, private property uh, timber harvesting things such as increasing the tree retentions for koala feed trees to 20 trees per hectare. That's a lot of trees per hectare. Uh, also, we have to use the koala habitat suitability mapping, even if there's no koala populations present. And there's a, you know, there's a whole plethora of other things as well for not just koalas, but our other important wildlife. Uh, look, on our property, we are really proud to have over 30 threatened and endangered species. And my son's the sixth generation. So it's not despite our management we have those things. We would contend it's because of our management. In those bushfires, what we found in a lot of the um, actively managed forests with less fuel loads, a lot of the fires didn't get into the canopies of the trees and that's where the koalas are. So there are still, in in burned country, you will still find, in on private property, quite a lot of koalas and everything survived those fires and therefore did not suffer local extinctions. So one of the concerns being raised is about extending these agreements to 30 years because we don't know in the next five or ten years how bad the situation might get for wildlife, what sort of protection koalas, for example, might need. Why is it necessary to increase from the agreements from 15 to 30 years? The extension, uh, well, in Tasmania, it's been 100 years for their forestry plans for many years. For over 30 years they've had that as a requirement down there recognising the length of time the timber crop takes to grow. 15 years is simply insufficient, doesn't recognise that slow growing of timber uh, and it also means that farmers have certainty for investment to make sure they have even healthier forests. Do you think this will get through the Parliament? I mean it was such a a flashpoint, wasn't it, in the coalition because uh, they had that Liberal MP Catherine Cusack crossing the floor. Um, it, it almost brought down the coalition. Do you think it will get through? Look, that was a different, completely different issue. This one, I believe, should receive bipartisan support because it just makes sense. The previous issue with the koala set, that all came about because it was the interplay between the wording in that koala set and that part of the planning document that caused all the dramas. The SEP is it would have meant that huge properties would have been um, restricted to having a DA uh, development application with council, even to remove such things as imminent danger tree, having three metre clearance around stockyards, all this stuff that was made no sense at all. It would have removed us from the local land services. And that was the problem with that. This is a completely different kettle of fish, and I believe it should have bipartisan support. Bronwyn Petrie is from the New South Wales Farmers Association. You're listening to The Country Hour. It's 29 minutes to one. Shortly we'll have uh, the news on the weather and uh, that front coming through, That another front coming through on Sunday. We'll get the latest on that. But before we do that, let's get some news headlines from Adam Story. Good afternoon. Afternoon, Michael. There's been another uh, dump of the uh, Medibank data by the uh, hackers and it's understood the latest release includes information. Uh, which is detailing hundreds of customers' information, including the termination of pregnancies. Uh, there are just over 300 files in the latest release, and it has been connected to a Russian-backed uh, criminal entity. Meanwhile, the state government is moving to strengthen protection for consumers by introducing new data laws. Uh, the state government agencies will need to notify customers of a breach within 30 days under the new bill table in Parliament. doesn't actually prevent it happening, but it's just the organisations have to tell you that it has happened. 
the former Olympic swimmer Scott Miller has been sentenced to more than five years jail for playing what the judge said was a central role in a, ju- a drug supply operation. Uh, the 47-year-old was sentenced alongside two accomplices, uh, Wayne Allen Johnson and Justin says Bollocks, uh, who pleaded guilty to several charges, including uh, supplying methamphetamine and heroin and participating in a criminal group. Uh, over in Ukraine, uh, Russia has announced that it's uh, pulling out of the uh, regional city of uh, Kherson. Uh, it says it's no longer possible to keep supplying the city. And the Russian military has been ordered to uh, pull out. It's the only regional capital it uh, captured after invading in February. And Ukraine saying it's uh, treating that with a bit of scepticism. Well, they're not exactly sure what they're, they're up to. With they're that. saying they're saying that there are Russian troops that have uh, that are holed up in the buildings, yeah. waiting for them to come in. That's that's what the Russian intelligence. Uh, that's what the Ukrainian intelligence yeah. and the US yeah. intelligence are saying as well. That they, apparently they're just holed up in the buildings, waiting yeah. for them to come in. I think then. I think the similar. There's a similar scenario during the Chechen war, mm, uh, yeah. something similar. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so, they're not, so they're not going in. They're not going in. No, no, no they're they're waiting and seeing. It's mm. yeah, just to uh, have a quick squiz see what's going on. Mm. Yeah, and uh, control of the U.S. Congress still undecided. We're waiting yeah. on good old Maricopa Incredible. County. <laughs> Incredible, given, given. Well, talk about um, the polls getting it wrong again. I tell you, this time the other really, way around. They really, they really got, got it wrong. Got it wrong. This time. Yeah, yeah, completely so, wrong. Uh, the Republicans are still forecast to hold, uh, have a slim majority, although the Democrats are apparently still in the game to mm. um, retain control. But even as someone, I was watching <clears> it last night on NBC, and they were saying that even that, um, the history that Biden's history is that he actually can normally co- convert a few moderate Republicans well, well, to vote Democrat. Well, this is it. He only needs a handful yeah. to get stuff passed, yeah. which is entirely possible. Um, if, if they still hold the Senate. Yeah, which that's is right. completely opposite to what any well, of the forecasts were. Well, they've actually picked were. up one. Um, yeah, they may right. actually come home with a majority of two. <laughs> like in 51, as opposed that's to right. majority of one. Yeah, that's so right. yeah. there is the uh, that uh, there is going to be that runoff in Georgia. Apparently, yeah. if you don't get fifty percent of the vote, where both of them are like forty. But if it's and someone else last night was saying, one of the pundits was saying, if they get fifty. And then, then the runoff becomes irrelevant because they'll have, they'll have the votes in the Senate anyway. So uh, that's right. Because no one they will, picked up Pennsylvania. No yeah. one will come to um, yeah. to uh, Herschel Walker's defence and try and get him over <laughs> get him over the line there. We'll have to go back to being a football police officer or whatever. Pundit. It is oh, was he? Oh, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> got the badge. <laughs> got a badge. <laughs> I've got a badge in the used, used, used to get that in the cornflakes box, didn't you? Yeah, 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 get a badge? Yeah, yeah. very own sheriff's badge. Used to walk around the house, you know. Oh, <laughs> yeah. gee, that was good, wasn't yeah, it? The good old that. days. <laughs> <laughs> this is my county. <laughs> oh, dear. Nostalgia. There you go. Yeah, right. the good old days. <laughs> the good old days. All right, thanks. Thanks for that, Adam. Adam's story there with news headlines. It's uh, 25 minutes to one. Time to find out some uh, news in regards to the weather. Not great news in terms of the weather. Alenka Dumar at the Bureau. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Michael. So we're still on track for that system coming through on Sunday, Monday. Yeah, that's uh, that's correct. But um, before we get to that system, we are um, we will see a, a trough uh, move about western inland parts um, from sort of later today and then extend into central inland parts uh, during Friday and Saturday. Um, and now this uh, trough and this system is expected to bring uh, some 
um, some thunderstorm activity uh, and possibly severe thunderstorm activity to most inland areas over the next couple of days and then extending into eastern districts during Saturday. So um, ahead of this, uh, ahead of um, all that rainfall expected later in the weekend, we are still expecting quite a stormy and showery um, period uh, throughout over the next few days. Now, um, as you mentioned, um, we are expecting a cold front to uh, begin to enter the western parts of New South Wales on Sunday, and that is that cold front will interact with this uh, inland trough, and it is expected to bring uh, widespread moderate rainfall uh, with uh, even uh, some locally heavy rainfall expected, particularly about southern inland uh, areas, uh, in particular the southwest slopes and parts of the Snowy Mountains and Riverina districts. Uh, where we could see uh, where there is a potential for a severe weather warning um, to be issued over the next couple of days for that area. But certainly we are expecting also with this system um, still those severe thunderstorm risks to persist uh, throughout Sunday and Monday about the western and uh, extending into the eastern districts during Monday as that cold front and that whole system does move eastwards. So um, while the next few days will be a bit stormy, um, we will see some locally moderate to heavy falls potentially with thunderstorms as well as the potential for some large hail and damaging wind gusts. Um, during Sunday and Monday, uh, really things do uh, ramp up and become a little bit more widespread in terms of, in particular, the rainfall and thunderstorm activity and the potential for those uh, for even more warnings and uh, also renewed river rises. And, and what are the hydrologists saying about the river rises? Are we might likely to see sort of um, flood peaks uh, pushed up again in the Lachlan, Murrumbidgee and, and uh, elsewhere in the state? Yeah, we certainly will. Um, we are expecting, and a flood watch was uh, just issued um, a couple of minutes ago, um, and it does include uh, those uh, sort of central west and southwest inland uh, catchments, including the Lachlan, Murrumbidgee, where we could start to see um, some uh, moderate to major flooding uh, and renewed peaks um, in the early parts of next week in particular. Um, so just keep on top of any warnings over the next few days. But certainly the flood watch is covering a uh, fairly large um, footprint right through the northwest inland, including yeah, along I was going to say so in the yeah, yeah so the, the Namoy, Namoy, the Guida, the Peel, Macquarie, yep. Macquarie, and then through um, through the central west as well, uh, the Balabula, Mandadjeri um, catchments could see moderate to major flooding as well, and then moving down uh, further south through the Lachlan, Murrumbidgee, and even um, around the Malonglo, Queenbee, and rivers uh, could also um, see some. Uh, renewed flood peaks so just keep on top of that over the next few days and um, obviously the thunderstorm activity over the next couple of days will also impact um, so it might be 30 millimeters yeah so it might be 30 millimeters but millimeters in generally but then there'll be thunderstorms as well which will uh, put the cat amongst the pigeons for the other people too yeah, that's correct. And particularly during Sunday, Monday, where we are expecting more widespread thunderstorm activity, um, those catchments and those uh, river rises and responses may be fairly quick and quite flash floody. So um, it will, it, it may not even be a slow river rise. Um, so we just be mindful of that as well, that it will be quite a, uh, quite a significant flash flood risk, um, not only over the next couple of days, but particularly early ne uh, end of weekend and early next week. Right, because the catchment's so wet, it just sort of flows in the rivers straight away. Um, uh, thanks for that. Thank you very much, Michael. It's uh, 21 minutes to one here on the New South Wales Country Hour. 
Well, we were getting a few texts on the uh, koala issue. Someone's texted in saying, surely by now we can work in harmony with koalas. Nobody wants to harvest trees near a colony. We have 2,500 hectares and have more timber country than open country, and we manage our fuel load, so any koalas that turn up there are fire safe, says Andrew. But uh, other people are uh, not happy about the news. Greg at Ningen says uh, he's going to be voting Labor at the next state election. The Nationals have no environmental conscience. The issue of dwindling habitat for koalas is critical. And he says the uh, tree felling uh, policy is barbaric. That's according to uh, Greg. Someone else on the potholes is saying uh, we should blow your horn when you're going into a pothole in case someone is coming out the other side. Uh, and um, But Jeff says, with all the money being wasted on this climate change nonsense, we're going to have to get used to dodging more potholes. He says there's just not enough money around to fix everything, says Jeff. It's uh, twenty. It's 19 minutes to one here on the New South Wales Country Hour to some dairy news now, because a leading dairy farmer says the decision by a major multi-nation milk processor to shut a factory and significantly reduce production to others is a sign of the decline in dairy. Dairy giant Saputo has uh, announced it will shut one of the factories at Mafra in Gippsland and will close a powder line at Leangatha and cheese packing operations at Millel in South Australia. A total of 75 jobs will be cut. Warwick Long spoke to Mark Billing, who's president of the United Dairy Farmers of Victoria, who says as milk production continues to shrink, factories will continue to close. It comes a bit of a shock with Saputo, Saputo's announcement, but I, I suppose it was more about not a lot of warning, I suppose, although you know, with the milk pool shrinking, I suppose we shouldn't be too surprised. My mind goes firstly to, to those that uh, potentially are going to lose their jobs with this rationalisation that Saputo's doing and the impact on the local communities because dairy farms still need to have local communities to be viable and uh, sustainable to provide us the services that we need to continue with our businesses. But, yeah, look, I, I think it's unfortunately with the size of the milk pool now, um, yeah, this rationalisation of, of processing, as we see in Victoria, but it, it could potentially be nationwide as well. Yeah, so the the wider picture here to you is a symbol that the, the amount of milk being produced in Australia by dairy farmers has been declining. It's led to competitive milk market and higher prices for farmers, but ultimately companies like Saputo have made some hard, hard calls on, on the factories they own. Yeah, that's right. And then if, look, there's been some hard calls made on farm too, don't forget, that with the um, rising costs and, and labour, there's been a lot of dairy farmers right-sizing their, their herd based on the resource that they can draw upon. So I think that's sort of had a, an impact, obviously, on, on the milk pool. But look, I think if we can um, stabilise the milk pool going forward, we need a lot of things to go right. And, you know, whether it's weather and labour and all those other issues, um, yeah, I can understand why Saputo have made the move they've, they have. The dairy milk pool still is in decline. What will it take to turn that around? Oh, look, I think it's, it's a lot about confidence, Warwick. So I think, look, I'm reasonably confident that the industry's still got a pretty good future. It's sustained uh, you know, four generations of my family along the way, but um, I, I'm pretty confident that we can see things stabilise over the next few years. And, and yeah, look, there's there's been more opportunities and more choices for dairy farmers over the last couple of years than I've ever seen, whether it's to um, pull up stumps and, and sell the farm and, and go into retirement or, or whether it's pivoting to beef. There's a lot of choice at the moment, so... 
we haven't necessarily seen that in the industry for a long time. So I think a lot of people are just exercising their their um, opportunities. Saputo won't rule out closing further factories. In fact, asked even about the future of Lee and Gatha or Malel themselves. Uh, the company wouldn't make any hard and fast commitments. Are you concerned about there being more factory closures before things improve? Oh, look, concern for for a number of reasons. One is that we need to have a diversity of of processes in the in the um, environment. That's for sure. Um, concern also for those that um, may lose their jobs through these closures as well um, because it, dairy, it, the one thing that dairy does is the, the processing happens you know, pretty close to where the milk is is um, harvested from from dairy farms and, and then processed and that supports local communities. So my concern would be that, um, you know, communities like Lee and Gatha and Mafra and others, um, Gippsland's had a bit of a belting with, with um, job losses over the, the years. My concern would be more for the, the communities and, and, you know, moving on from that, um, if the community is not there, the, the support for dairy farm businesses may not be there either. Mark Billing is a president of the United Dairy Farmers of Victoria. It's a quarter to one. You're listening to The Country Hour. On ABC Radio, New South Wales. New technology has been found to be successful to control invasive mice by essentially breeding themselves out. Researchers at the University of Adelaide have developed a world-first proof of concept for the technology called T-CRISPR that would make mice infertile. Lou Wageris is a PhD student working in genetics at the university and he says this could help with eradicating mice plagues into the future. So it's a form of genetic control of invasive mice and instead of using sort of bait and trapping mechanisms like we currently do, it uses a genetic approach to spread infertility throughout a population. So it's much more humane than current sort of mechanisms. So it's breeding out these invasive mice? Yeah, essentially it's sort of spreading that trait throughout the population. We've been working on this for about four or five years now and it's sort of using very new technology, so it's an idea that we haven't been able to do sort of since a few years ago. And can this kind of technology, this new technology, be used for other animals, other pest animals that are also an issue? Yeah, hopefully. So the current system that we have is specific to mice, but we're hoping that components of it can be transferred to other species, such as uh, rats and rabbits and foxes. Uh, There's a lot of interest in that. And just finally, how important is this uh, research and, and this technology moving forward? Well, it's critical because you know we've had mice in Australia for about 150 years and current control strategies haven't really changed over those 150 years. It's just been trapping and bait. So this is quite a revolutionary technology that gives us another way to try and control and suppress mice, which current approaches aren't quite good enough at the moment. Luke Garris, who is a PhD student working in genetics at the University of Adelaide. So what do those that deal with mice as part of their work think of this new technology? CSIRO research officer and mouse expert Steve Henry says any research that can deal with mice numbers is welcome, but it could still be a long time coming. I think this kind of work is part of a suite of work that's really important to do because we while we we need to be focusing on the stuff that we can use to control mice now, we also need to be looking outside 
of the box in terms of these new technologies to try and grab some any sort of way of helping us to control mice in the future. So in this scenario, there's a lot of work that needs to be done to understand how the technology would spread through populations in a mainland scenario. So again, really important to do the work, but there's a lot of work that needs to go alongside the development of the new tech to understand how it would work in a, in a uh, if you like, on a continental scale or within agricultural systems. Uh, the farming community are fantastic in terms of their willingness to, ad to adopt new ideas and, and new tech, and farmers are innovating all the time. So yeah, I'm, I'm guessing, I guess, that they would be um, really interested in this sort of thing. My perspective of it is that, that the timeframes associated with getting this work to a situation where it could actually be applied in a real-world scenario are really quite long. So while it's really important to do them, we need to not say, oh, we've got a solution that's just around the corner. That's uh, CSIRO Research Officer and Mouse Expert Steve Henry. Henry, it's uh, coming up to 10 minutes to one on the New South Wales Country Hour. Well, one of the largest farming aggregations in the New South Wales, New England, has sold for $100 million three properties, Plumthorpe, Campo Santo and Mayvale at Baraba, were sold prior to auction recently for an estimated $84 million plus $17 million for livestock and plant and equipment. Agent Chris Mears told Jen Ingle it's a significant sale and the combination is unique for the district. Yes, I think it's very significant. I think there's a couple of uh, points which are very important in, in analysing this sale. One is the historic aspects of Plumthorpe as a rural holding. Uh, and it, together with Campo Santo and Mayvale, two adjoining properties, totaling about 28,000 acres, have been very well held over generations. And they are some of the pick of northern New South Wales, in particular the Baraba district. The and, and as a result of the size of the operation, their carrying capacity is really significant. And we say, and the owners say, that you could carry 4,500 breeding cows or 84,000 sheep, which in agricultural terms, especially in New South Wales, is a huge holding. And as a result of that, the sale attracted interest from not only New South Wales, but Queensland, Victoria... And uh, actually, there was an inquiry from the Northern Territory as well. So it, it really it really struck a chord with the rural sector because of its scale. The other interesting point is that historically, the market our market has been comprised, say, forty percent of existing landholders buying more land, forty percent of. Uh, investors buy more land and 20% offshore. In this case, 90% of the parties that inspected, and there were some 31 uh, inspections in total, but 90% of those people were existing landowners, especially cattle people, who were wishing to expand their existing operations. Now, that really speaks volumes of the rural sector as an asset investment class at the moment. 
Agent Chris Mears speaking to Jen Ingle. Well, a record yarding of 81,000 sheep were put up for sale at Wagga Wagga today. It's uh, down from an estimated earlier uh, 107,000, but still beating a record that was set about 10 years ago. Paul Martin, manager of Wagga Wagga Livestock Marketing Centre, told Simon Wallace that the massive numbers might have scared off a few sellers and the logistics around the floods might have made transport a bit difficult. We heard that there's going to be 107,000 sheep and lambs today. What's happened? Uh, yes, Simon. So 107,000 uh, was what we drew for yesterday morning at 10 o'clock, or half past 10 yesterday morning. That was uh, quite a staggering figure for everybody in the, you know, operationally on site to get their heads around for today. Uh, we went back out to, we went back out and revisited that number yesterday afternoon about three o'clock. Uh, where we saw the numbers uh, drop back to about 90,000 thereabouts. Um, and then this morning, after the stock have started arriving and we've got a, a reasonable a reasonable quantified estimate of about 80,000, 81,000 for the day. So still quite a, quite a significant number of stock to sell for the day, but uh, the facility and the, and the agents are well and truly up to the task. Why do you think it dropped back so much? Oh, well, I think there would be a multiple... A number of factors there. I guess once you start talking those numbers, logistics starts to play a, a major role in that. Um, availability of transport to get stock in and out. Um, maybe the maybe that number did have a bit of a send a bit of a, a decision making point out to some some producers if they weren't in a in a situation where they needed to sell today or it might not have been in their best interest. They might have wanted to just hold off and see what the market did with that sort of number. So yeah, there would be a multiple number of factors that have changed the, the number today, yeah. That 107, would that have been a record for Wagga? Uh, absolutely. Well, if we get the 80, uh, if we get the 80 today, that'll be that'll be a new record, about five, 6,000 above uh, the standing record here on site. So 80,000 is a record? It will be, yeah, yep. Now, you've, you've got, that one's probably a little bit dusty in my memory, but it was, uh, I think it was back... 2012, somewhere around there, maybe 2012. I'd stand corrected on that, um, but it was uh, that was a record set through drought years. Uh, so this is uh, this is vastly different as well to see a record or a number of stock at, at this at this time of year, and we're we're talking real good quality finished stock, you know. So it's uh, it's a really it's a real positive for it's a positive for the producers. It's a positive for you know everybody involved. Paul Martin is a manager of uh, Wagga Wagga Livestock Marketing Centre and um, we put up some drone pics uh, on, the, uh, on our social media site, on the Facebook site, so that people can check out the aerial shot on uh, ABC Facebook later on this afternoon. So uh, head to that and check out the record yarding of uh, around about 81,000 sheep that we'll put up for sale at Wagga today. Let's find out the latest from Wagga and here's Graham Richard. Good afternoon. There was a huge jump in numbers with 54,000 penned. There were 42,000 new season lambs. The quality was mixed in the large offering and included plenty of store lambs and some dry trade weights which went back to the paddock. Good trades were limited and there was a good run of heavy and extra heavy lambs. Not all the usual trade buyers operated and the quality was back and came off a very strong market. Prices were back 30 to 50 across a large spread with the extra heavy lambs 20 cheaper. 
New season restocking lamb sold from 76 to 143, trades to 24 kilos, 130 to 200, 24 to 26 kilos, 171 to 212, 26 to 30, 186 to 236, with extra heavies reaching 262. The old trades, 106 to 189. Heavyweights 185 to 200 with extra heavies reaching 250. The best of the heavy merinos 185 and there's still 19,000 sheep to be sold. And this has been Graham Richard at Wagga. Let's go to Dubbo Cattle, Tim Delaney. Good afternoon. With the improved weather conditions, the cattle numbers are lifted dramatically to approximately 5,363 at Dubbo. Although it was a mixed offering, it was improved quality yarding with cattle showing increasing quality and cover in places. Good supply of all categories, a mix of beef, bread, crossbreds and bosindigus cattle was made up of 3,623 yearlings, 865 grown steers, 858 cows and 9 bulls. Prices were generally at an easier trend. Growing cattle were from 5 to 20 cents easier. The younger cattle to the process were 5 to 15 cents lower. Feeder younger cattle were from 10 to 15 cents cheaper. Cows sold to a softer trend from money from 10 to 20 cents cheaper. Bulls sold strongly. At this stage, we're still at half the yarding to sell. Villas have been sold from 536 to 580 cents. Restock has paid from 500 to 638 cents. Lightweight steers to 760. Yearling steers to the processors made from 450 to 582 cents. Feeders sold from 450 to 538. The good quality restockers paying between 536 to 570 cents. Let's go to Yass now. Numbers increased for a total yarding of 664 mixed quality cattle. Yearlings made up the bulk of the offering with some well-finished lines to suit the trade along with some good pens to suit the feedlot buyers and also some planer types. There were some good runs of heavy grown cattle, 108 cows to suit the processors along with 69 cows and calves returning the paddock. All the usual buyers were operating, selling to a cheaper trend. Yearling steers to suit the trade slip date, 4.70 to 5.40. Yearling heifers to process, eased a few cents, 4.60 to 5.20. Feeder steers were cheaper. Medium weight sold from 4.50 to 5.40. And those over 400 kilos reached 542 cents to average 4.86. There were not enough feeder heifers to quote. Weaner steers returning to the paddock were a few cents better, 5.12 to 6.10. And the heifer portion ranged from 5.05 to 5.75. Heavy ground steers back 6, 400 to 4.76. Grown heifers also cheaper, 3.85. 81 to 438. Heavy prime cows ease 9, 355 to 400. The best heavyweight bull topped at 352 cents per kilo. Cows and calves made from 2,500 to $3,900 per unit. This is Dave Kent at Yass for MLA. Let's go to Armadale Cattle now. Good afternoon. Numbers doubled to 950 head. Yearlings well supplied along with a few late vealers. A good supply of cows. Condition was fair to very good. Quality was very mixed. The regular processes in attendance. A strong restocker presence. Minimal feedlot activity. Varying trends with the vealers to restockers. Cheaper steers over 200 kilos. 578 to 680 cents a kilo. The heifers sold from 536 to 618. Lightweight yearling steers to restockers were keenly sought and they sold a deer. Trends 526 to 734 cents. Medium weight significantly cheaper, 410 to 596. Breed and quality played a role in lightweight yielding heifers, selling substantially dearer in places, 510 to 728 cents a kilo. Trade heifers sold to much cheaper trends under limited competition with medium and heavyweights, 348 to 578 cents. Heavy grown steers to process sold to cheaper trends, 380 to 420. Firm to cheaper the well finished grown heifers, 332 to 390. 
cows were five to eight cents cheaper with the heavy three and four scores three twenty to three hundred and eighty eight cents a kilo. James Armitage from LA in Armidale. And that's the market information for today. You've been listening to the New South Wales Country Hour. It's time for the news. We're heading up to one o'clock. <laughs>